far. Can you share some of your stories of both success and failure on new products and launches? They they put these upcycled chicken chips in really niche culinary varieties into a can, like a, like a beer can. They had so many good ideas, but it was too much innovation in one single product. They were delicious. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm excited as my guest to have Barb Stuckey, who is president and chief innovation officer of Matson. Barb, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me. Let's leap right into it, Barb. What, for starters, why don't you tell our listeners about some of your personal background and how you got into the food and the innovation business? Sure. Well, if we're going to talk about how I got into the food business, it's it's basically I was kind of I grew up in it. So when I was young, my best friend's parents had a, a Chinese restaurant. And when Stacy's mom was babysitting, we were at the restaurant. And I think just having spent 12 years in the back of house at a restaurant, it was really in my blood. So after undergrad, I started work for Kraft and I was working in their food service division where it became clear to me that my real passion was food and restaurants. So I went back to school and got a graduate degree from the Cornell Hotel School and was lucky enough between my years there to work for Brinker, which is the restaurant company that owns Chili's and lots of other big chains. And, and I worked with Phil Romano of Romano's Macaroni Grill. And at the time, Phil was working for Brinker doing concept development for them, meaning he was coming up with new restaurant concepts and then starting the prototype restaurants. And so I spent my the two years or the year between my two years at grad school in this sort of conceptual development role. Coming out of grad school, I, I moved out to the San Francisco Bay Area for a lot of reasons. One of them was I had a a bit of an urge to start my own restaurant and to make a long story short, didn't do that for a whole host of reasons, ended up being a, a great decision because mm. um, <laughs> it's a hard life, right? It's a really hard Tough life. Tough business. But someone said to me, you know, I know what you did um, with Phil Romano. You did some sort of conceptual development. There's this company called Matson, And so I walked in the front door of Matson. This was 23 years ago. And have been there ever since. And what we do is conceptual development of mostly CPG, food and beverage, but also a little bit of food service. And we also are best known for product development, of course. Very quickly, I have three other jobs. One of them is I'm, I, I wrote a book about the science of taste called Taste. We use that book to teach incoming students at the San Francisco Cooking School how to taste before they learn how to cook. I sit on the advisory board of the Plant-Based Foods Association. And then when I find the time, I write for Forbes.com. Well, it's, uh, it's a great background and we're, uh, we're so pleased to have you on the podcast again. Barb, tell us a little bit more about Matson in terms of, you know, what makes Matson unique? What differentiates you? Who are some of your customers, if you can name some? Sure. Yeah. Well, our mission from, you know, a very high level is to invent the future of food one product at a time. And that's what we do. That is our business is helping our clients 
get new products to market. So what we do is, is help clients go from wherever they are in the innovation journey to get a new product to market to wherever they need us to take them. So that can start at the fuzzy front end of innovation where we're doing insights work to, to find a space for opportunity for our clients. That leads into some sort of business or brand strategy, which eventually leads into new product strategy and conceptual development of the idea. And then that leads into product development. As I said, we're best known for this. We have half of our 60-person company is in the product development function. So we have a, a, a beautiful food and beverage development lab and pilot plants in Foster City, California, near San Francisco. Of course, we are operating with uh, social distancing at the moment and some other constraints, but we mm. are back in business. And, and then just to finish the journey, if our client needs us to, we will find them a contract manufacturer and help them scale the product. So that's really what we do. You ask what differentiates us. And I think what, what does is really the fact that we have this holistic perspective. So whether or not our client hires us for that whole journey, we're bringing the knowledge of that entire system of how you do innovation. We're bringing that to every project. Our clients really we like to say we work in 100% share of stomach. So would prefer not to name them by name, but I will say that some of the largest multinationals in the world are clients, both food and beverage companies. We also work with mid-size companies, everyone from produce processors to companies that are selling baby food, companies that are selling alcoholic beverages and everything in between. And we also are doing a lot of work these days with startups and entrepreneurs. So helping them get their prototype ready for market and also get them ready for fundraising. Mm -hmm. Exciting. So let me ask you this, Barb. I've been working on technology for the food industry for almost 30 years and watching the food industry change over that period of time. I don't think I've ever seen a time of so much disruption and new products being launched and innovation. It's really an exciting time in the food industry. Do you find the same thing? And if so, what do you think the factors are that are driving that? Yeah, I think there's two big factors here. I think the first one is just a suspicion of big food and what they are marketing to consumers and consumers becoming much more aware and conscious of what they're putting in their body as consumers look to food as health. With a hesitancy to buy big food brands, there has sprouted up this whole ecosystem of smaller, regional, more niche focused brands at the smaller end of things. And I think that the power balance as a result in the food industry has really shifted. And so these, these smaller companies who are emerging have just been bringing so much innovation to the market. And there has just been an incredible flow of money into the industry to fund that innovation. So you've got, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley money coming in. You've got a lot of uh, private equity money coming in, venture capital. And that gets to my, what I think is the, the second reason that all of this is happening. And that is that just 
consumers' general awareness of how we eat impacts the world. And, you know, we, we just did some recent consumer insights work to enable our work. And what it showed is that the, this focus and, and passion about doing the right thing for the environment is really moving dietary habits. So it's really impacting the way people are thinking about food. And that, of course, then drives innovation. It's an exciting time, but it's also probably a challenging time for a lot of food and CPG companies. If if you were to look at different ones, since you work with so many all the time, what, what do you think separates out the the companies that are really being successful right now, the companies at the other end who are not being very successful, and maybe the companies in the middle who are sort of treading water, what do you, what do you think the differentiating factors are? Yeah, well, if there was a formula for success, I think we'd all be doing it. I wish it was that simple. But, you know, I, th- I think there's a couple of elements that, that lead to the path to success, at least. The first one that comes to mind is just the ability and willingness to pivot, which has been more important than ever during the COVID-19 changes that we have seen in the industry. And so companies that are willing to say, hey, you know what, what we've been doing in the past is not going to work right now and may not work in the future. So we need to think differently. And and that's hard. It's, and the bigger you are, the harder it is. So, you know, I, I really applaud the big CPG companies who have been able to pivot. You know, that's just one thing. I think the other thing is the ability to look at your business and the marketplace and your brand and your assets and to see new opportunities. There's a lot of, of companies and brands that, that look at their portfolio and think, you know, we've, we've got something that appeals to everyone. And, you know, maybe we don't need new innovation. Maybe we need to just market our product better. Or we need to redo our packaging or we need to whatever it is. And I think that's dangerous. I think you, you always have to be looking at new opportunities. And so, you know, I, I remember actually just one case study that comes to mind is, is our work with one of the early energy bar brands, which I'm sure all the listeners here will know. Um, I can't, don't necessarily want to name it, but mm. what we were working on identifying new opportunity spaces for them. And, and that one of the founders just kept saying, I don't know why we're looking at breakfast. You know, I feel like our, our current bar is just perfect for breakfast. Why don't we just market it as great for breakfast? And while that's a great thing to do, if your product isn't specifically created for a new opportunity or a new occasion or a new consumer, you are missing out on opportunities and, and, and opportunities to be successful to get back to your question. So, you know, one of the things that, that we see is that the companies that do well are those that are always striving to be looking for what's on the horizon and what's next. Mm-hmm. Heading up innovation at Matson, when you approach a project or other people at Matson approach a project, how do you juggle the customer's demands, the market issues, the need to have some sort of process for your blank sheet of paper, and then throw in there all that creativity? How do you, how do you juggle all that? Well, I mean, I think it's the first thing I will say, and this is a shameless plug, of course, is that, you know, if you 
if you don't know how to do this messy thing called innovation, hire someone who does, right? I mean, there, there are a lot of companies out there that can help you with it. We've been in business for 42 years and we've been honing our ideation and creative process over the, that time. And, you know, it's just, it's not as simple as throwing creativity against the wall. And, you know, there's, there's some agencies out there. There are some people within companies who feel like if you can just come up with a great, a, a good creative idea and you can use some culinary skill to create a delicious product, that's all you need. And it really, that, that's only a part of the equation. So what we really think is important is that you have a team of cross-functional people involved. And that's what we bring to every single one of our innovation projects. And the reason that that's important is because if you come up with a great idea and you have a delicious culinary prototype and you can't make it at scale, it's not worth very much. So the point is that you have to have people that are involved along the way who have a sense for what is technically feasible meaning what is technically feasible in, in the channel and the space in which the company operates. Now, finding people who are in that technical role and who are focused on feasibility and have the responsibility of scaling a product who are also creative, that's hard. And that's what we do. You know, we really interview people very carefully and, and very intensely to make sure that they they have both the right side and left side of the brain capabilities. And so that's, that's what it takes is, is that cross-functional team, including people who are creative and can think technically and people who are technical that can think creatively. So, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's that. And then it's also having a process for taking those steps forward. And, and we use a bunch of different methods depending on what the assignment is, depending on the size of the client, depending on whether or not our client wants to be involved in the ideation process or not. One of the things that we've been using for the past five months while we're all working from home is, is ProtoThink, which is our virtual social media ideation tool. So that has been incredibly helpful to keep the creative process going when we can't get together in a room. You know, you think of ideation as happening live and it does happen live, but it doesn't ha have to happen face to face. Thanks for sharing that tip. Speaking of the current pandemic, you touched on it briefly earlier, but this is obviously putting new pressures on all of us, but also on food and CPG companies. How are they having to change to best respond in your view and based on what you've seen? Yeah. You know, I think both retail grocery buyers and packaged goods companies have been really overworked and overwhelmed with the, the demand. Of course, the demand coming because a lot of the consumption in the world that was happening in the food service channel away from home is now happening at home. So, you know, just having to, again, pivot to respond to the, the surges in demand, uh, a lot of companies have really reduced the number of of SKUs, of, of, of varieties of products that they're manufacturing. So that's in response to the, the increased demand. Now, what that may mean in some cases is that 
innovation has been put on the sideline, or at least, you know, the, the pause button has been pushed. And while we know that that happened and we know that, that it necessarily had to happen, we also know that at some point and, and now is probably the time, if not too late, that you have to push play again. So during the, the last couple of months, we've been doing a lot of consumer insights work. And, and what we have found out very recently is that from our own consumer studies, that 58% of consumers says that when things return to normal, when their grocery and eating and, and cooking habits go back to the way it was before the shelter-in-place restrictions, 58% of consumers say they will want innovative new products immediately. So, you know, you can understand why if you've been at home and you've been cooking and eating the same thing for months upon months, they're going to be in the grocery stores looking for what's new, what's exciting, what's going to give my family something that they haven't been able to experience while we've been at home. So, you know, we're, we're really encouraging people to get that innovation going again. We also know from some of the industry research that we've done that um, a lot of food and beverage professionals are anticipating that grocery retail buyers are really going to be overwhelmed with ideation. And we know that, that during the shutdowns that it was really hard to get those, those meetings to try and sell in a new product. And so, um, you know, it, when things sort of start to let up, there is just going to be this backlog of of um, new products in the hopper that everyone's trying to get on shelf. And so, you know, if, you, if you're not already teed up and, and ready to go with your new products, you're going to be way, way, way behind the competition. So, so that has been a, a major change over the last couple of months that we think is going to really start to happen. Thanks for sharing all that. I hadn't thought of all of those challenges, but also all of those opportunities. It is going to be interesting and there's going to be bottlenecks along the way. Speaking of innovation and opportunities, you know, we, we could talk about hot categories that have been hot for a year or more. But do you, do you see any niches or opportunities out there that, uh, that you can share that you think are underexploited right now? Sure. Well, I'm going to start with one that I'm sure you're expecting and everybody else is aware of, but I do think, um, I, we, I think there's some niches of niches that are, um, are underexploited. And, and that, of course, would be in the plant-based alternative space. So if you look at, even starting with plant-based milk alternatives, what you're seeing is that that makes up about 15% of the fluid milk and milk alternative categories. So if you think about other animal alternatives, they're nowhere near at 15% of the category. So just let's take, for example, chicken. So we think that there is an enormous opportunity for plant-based chicken alternatives. And that has really not been tapped into in a huge way or in a creative way with some, you know, new ingredients and new product forms. So we think that that's that just got huge upside. We think that dairy beyond milk has also been underexploited. And so there's lots of opportunity there in things like cheese and sour cream and 
you know, all of the things that we love that, that are right now, even ice cream and frozen dairy, those things just are going to continue to grow. Then, you know, stepping back outside of, of the obvious plant-based alternative opportunities, we really think there's an opportunity for CPG brands that are maybe flush with, with cash right now because of the, the surges in demand to repurpose some of that money in moving center store brands into the perimeter. So if you think about it, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges that are still happening in the restaurant world. And it's not just restaurants, but it's all away from home consumption. So even non-commercial facilities like, you know, workplace cafeterias and, and hospitals and schools and all of those places that haven't been operating. And so when they come back, they're going to be looking for fresher versions of products that are packaged that will signal to their, their consumers that they're safe. And so it seems to us that there is this huge opportunity to take those, those very trusted center store brands, move them to the perimeter in a fresh way, in a, you could say grab and go sort of format, and then offer them in both the grocery store, but also in other channels. So we're very, very bullish on grab and go. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing all that. There were a lot of good tips in there. I remember. You and I were both speaking at an innovation conference about a year ago, and one of the topics that came up is the plant-based alternatives for cheese were not very good. And I've noticed there's some some new products on the market that are pretty good, but uh, there, I think there's still a big hole there. So thanks for all those insights. I'm, I'm here with Barb Stuckey, who is president and chief innovation officer of Matson. Barb, you talked a little bit before about the challenges of hiring the right people with the right balance between creativity and a process and scientific approach, the left brain, right brain. What other qualities or talents do you find when you're working with some of the top innovators you admire? Sure. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is curiosity because innovation is really about looking into the future being curious about it and being willing to explore it. So I think that when we're looking for people to join our team of employee owners, we're looking for people that are curious about the industry, curious about technology, curious about food, frankly. And, and, and <laughs> I don't want to undersell this passion for food because, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the food and beverage industry who ended up there but aren't necessarily foodies. And and we make a really big point of hiring people that consider themselves foodies or eaters or whatever term you want to use. But the general thing that goes along with that is just passion, right? So passion for food and beverage. And so what we've learned over the years is that even when we're hiring food technologists, who you would think would be passionate foodies, they're not all that way. So, so what we do is, is we interview them with a nod towards food passion. And then for our food technologists, we make them cook. So we put them through a bit of a quick fire challenge and, 
and we watch them cook and we listen to why they're cooking, what they're cooking for us. And then we eat their food and we find that people that are really connected to food and cooking tend to make the best food and beverage employees, at least for Matson, where we're looking for passion and curiosity. And then wow, the other thing great, that... Great tip. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I, I remember oh, I was working with a, a snack brand not too long ago. And um, I remember walking into their offices and looking around for the food and there was no food and thinking, how can you be a food company without food all around you and, and celebrating food together? And when we do that at Matson, uh, for example, we have what we call family meal together every day, meaning we all sit down and have lunch together. And we have snacks and breakfast. And, you know, if you're staying late, there's food to eat. It's food. And we surround ourselves by food for inspiration, but also because that food brings community and builds community along with it. That's a that's a great example of a great company culture. It sounds like you've got it really going on at Matson. Uh, Barb, without giving away any confidential information, can can you share some of your experiences uh, stories of both success and failure on new products and launches. Yeah, I think, you know, I'd love to use somebody else's example because I think it's, it's really indicative of some of the challenges around food and beverage innovation. And I, I want to, I'm going to use a case study from Tyson because I have so much respect for this product that unfortunately didn't make it. And it, it's essentially, they, they started a new brand called Yappa. And it, it was a really ambitious brand and product. It was made from upcycled chicken trim. So you can imagine as Tyson is processing chicken, there's a lot of chicken trim that goes to waste. So there was this upcycling story about how we're using essentially waste ingredients and turning that into food that can be delicious. So they, they used this upcycled ingredient and they turned the chicken pieces into chips. So now you've got something that's really, really super innovative, right? There, there aren't any chicken chips on the market unless they're potato chips, maybe flavored with chicken seasonings, but these were chips actually made out of chicken. And so that was just an incredible innovation right there. Then, what they did was they did them in really, really ambitious flavors. So, you know, not the regular barbecue and sour cream and onion or even buffalo that you would, ex you would imagine. They were very high culinary out there flavors. And, and again, lots of innovation in the snack space. And then, you know, lastly, they, they put these upcycled chicken chips in really niche culinary varieties into a can, like a, like a beer can, which was really interesting because it sort of fit with the recycling story, right? Because these aluminum cans are highly recyclable. So that sort of uh, connected with the upcycled ingredients that they had used. But I think what happened here, and, and this is just so illustrative to me of, of the challenges of innovation is they had so many good ideas, but it was too much innovation in one single product. And, and it was just too much to communicate. And for me, just too, too 
many benefits so that the consumer may not have been able to take them all in in a single shopping experience. So, you know, what does that say about what products are are able to succeed in the marketplace? And we have a saying where we like to say, you have to innovate, but you have to have one foot in the familiar. So that foot in the familiar could be maybe the chips are in a bag, like potato chips, or maybe the chips come in a barbecue flavor. So, you know, you, you know what that's going to taste like. Or maybe the chick chips are made from, you know, a blend of potato and chicken, or maybe they're, whatever the case may be, you have to have an anchoring bit of familiarity for the consumer in order to get them in. And maybe you get them in with that familiarity, and then maybe your next product line is really, 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 really pushing the boundaries. But I just, I love this case study because I, I have so much respect for how much thought and innovation and frankly, excellence, because they were delicious, went into this product, but yet it didn't succeed. So I think it tells a good story. That is a great story. So when you see new product innovation, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges or speed bumps that slow people down or slow companies down? You know, I'm, I'm going to uh, maybe stop, start beyond the company level at more of a, an innovation perspective. So some of the biggest innovations that are happening in the food and beverage industry right now are around new ingredients, new technologies. So just for a couple of examples, let's just talk about cannabidiol, otherwise known as CBD which is uh, an ingredient that a lot of people are looking for because of its purported benefits. So that's one example. Cultivated meat is another where um, this is the technology that uses sampling of animal tissue to grow the meat in uh, a cultivator, essentially multiplying the tissue to, to be essentially grow animal meats from a small sample, a cellular sample. Um, I, and I think this also applies to plant-based. And, and what I'm getting at is, is regulatory and the regulatory constraints. Or in the case of a lot of these things, the lack of regulatory guidance. So right now, if you, if you look at CBD, uh, FDA has, has issued some somewhat unclear guidance it's and it's not really guidance it's a little bit more of a consumer watch out if you look at cultivated meat the both fda and usda have said that they're going to work together to regulate this new technology but there hasn't been any guidance that has come out of that so you know we're still waiting for that and i mentioned earlier plant-based alternatives there there have been a number of lawsuits out there around what you can label a plant-based food. So for example, can you call a plant-based cheese cheese if it's not made from dairy? So FDA has some old and perhaps outdated regulations around that that they haven't updated and really haven't commented on. So I think the regulatory constraints really can hold back innovation. And I'm, you know, I'm hopeful for all of these categories that I'm talking about that we're going to get some real strict 
guidance from the regulatory agencies and be able to go to market. But right now, you know, a lot of them are, are very unclear. And so I, I do think that that is a, is and can be a speed bump in the future. Yeah, that's a good insight. Um, while, while we're on the topic of new areas like CBD and plant-based, we talk a lot on this podcast about the differences between trends and fads. Can you, can you share any insights, Barb, on, on your view or Matson's view on what might be a short-term fad and what might turn out to be a long-term trend? Sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, we actually just did some consumer insights work around this and asked people what they thought of a couple of different things. And one of the things we asked about was, was plant-based eating. And we asked them if, if they thought it was a trend that was going to be around for a long time, a trend that was going to be around for a not too long amount of time or a fad. And the vast majority of consumers came back and told us that plant-based eating was going to be a trend that was around for a long time. So it was going to persist in the future. So, you know, I think that if it, if we go back to what I said at the beginning of the podcast around our awareness of how what we eat impacts the the biggest consumer of all, meaning planet Earth, I think we're going to we're going to see a lot of future activity in this plant-based space. So so we truly believe and have some data to support that it is a trend and and not a fad. Um, I will say that we, we also got some feedback on um, specialized diets. So for example, the keto diet, which is, it can be incredibly, um, it can be useful and, and, and uh, give people real success in the weight loss area. But um, what our consumers and, and industry professionals have told us is that they think keto is going to be a short-lived fad. And I, I think there's a number of reasons for that. And number one is it's, it's a really hard diet to stick to. It's also really hard to find products that, that meet the, the criteria of keto in order to put people into ketosis for weight loss. So that one is one that comes up time and again where people say they, they really just believe it's, it's a bit of a, a fad. That's interesting. So uh, we appreciate that. Thanks for sharing your research on consumer beliefs there. Uh, let's, let's shift and talk uh, timeframes to launch new products. What, what can you share with our listeners about the typical ranges you've seen from concept all the way out to consumption? And how, how can folks compress those timeframes? Sure. Well, you know, I, 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 another shameless plug here is if, if you're really on a tight timeline, hire a partner, an external partner who can really supercharge your team, right? Because sometimes what we like to say is that the companies that are doing a good job on innovation and product development have more good opportunities than they have resources. So sometimes it's just a matter of hiring more resources. But, you know, if, if that's not the case and you're really just fighting the clock, I, I think it just really, it, it's about being organized and having a very clear path forward. And for us, that really starts with, with product strategy and then a very tight concept. So a lot of clients will come to us and they'll want to jump right into product development. 
And we oftentimes will say, hey, you know what? We're just feeling like the concept that you've got here is not clearly enough defined for the consumer or clearly enough defined for us to be able to start product development. So it's absolutely, it's critical that you have your product strategy and the actual concept really super clear, articulated, put it to paper, put it to consumers if you can and get some feedback, finalize it before you start to do product development. That's the way that you'll end up having the best success on on meeting your timeline. If you don't have a clear vision and you don't have a clear concept that you're working against with very tight criteria, you can really end up meandering around or, you know, worst case scenario is you can go somewhere and end up having to backtrack because you didn't really have a clear path forward. So that's how we generally will compress timelines. And those clients where we say to them at the beginning of the process, hey, you know what, we need to take a step back and work on the concept. It often seems like that's going to delay the timeline, but the reason that we're recommending it is because we know that if you get that right up front, it will actually help shorten the timeline. So that's my biggest advice to people who are trying to meet a, a tight timeline. Hmm. Speaking of that whole process, if you were to pull out your crystal ball and look five or 10 years down the road, do you think companies will be developing new products the way they do today uh, or the way they've historically developed them? Do you think change is coming in the process itself? Yeah, well, I guess there's two things. One is just the process of how we're developing things, meaning are we in a, a centralized lab facility where we're working together as teams? And I think in the short term, that's going to have to be only a part of the puzzle. And so, you know, what we're doing at Matson is we've got our lab back up and running, but we are also continuing to have our product development team members dispersed throughout the San Francisco Bay Area doing development from their homes. So, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago if that would be the case, I'd never in a million years would I have said that that would be a, a way that we are doing business, but it's working. I mean, we're moving forward. We're meeting timelines. We're, we're getting to the deliverables that we had anticipated before COVID-19 hit. So I, I think just the ways of working are going to change forever because of, of that, the need to pivot with this pandemic. The other thing that I think is, is going to really become more and more and more important in the future is really just again, back to the same thing that I said that this, the impact on planet earth and how we're doing everything from procurement to packaging. So uh, we're already getting requests from our clients, the more progressive ones to look at regenerative ingredients, meaning that the ingredients that we're buying to put into a new product are not only sustainable, meaning that they're not hurting the environment, but that they're actually regenerating the environment, meaning that they are making what they left behind stronger for the next crop that comes along or 
you know, the next whatever that's coming behind it. So this idea of regenerative agriculture, I think, is is huge. And right now the supply chain is quite limited, but uh, we think that that's going to be changing. And then right on top of that is this idea of crop diversity, where, again, we're sort of getting requests from our progressive clients to build into a single product crop diversity. So what does that mean? It means if you're doing a plant-based milk, for example, instead of using just one bean or one legume or one nut, building in multiple different crops so that you are bringing into this product resilience, diversity, and um, flexibility. So that gets back to also uh, spreading the wealth across the, the environment and not relying on a mono crop culture as we have done in the past, but looking to a future where we've got a, a real diversity of crops to, to, to better the environment. So I think those are two really big areas that we think are going to continue. It's, it's interesting, uh, sustainability. Most companies just simply think in, in terms of, Hey, I'm uh, buying from good ethical upstream supply chain partners. But what you're saying is think about it from the front end of product innovation. Oh, yeah. I mean, in some cases, we are actually working on projects that are the genesis of the project comes out of trying to repurpose some sort of manufacturing or agricultural byproduct or waste, if you will. So in some cases, that's actually driving innovation. So if you've got this low cost or what is essentially a throwaway product that has some nutritive value or some um, other type of, of interest, many clients are hiring us to figure out what to do with, with that supply chain. So how do you take this and how do you upcycle it, which is a new word and there's a new association to support this? How do you upcycle some of that into what is essentially a sustainable product because it's ingredients that would have been tossed away if it were not for this product? You know, how do you upcycle it into something that's of value to consumers? And again, that that's another area where we feel like there's going to be a lot of activity because not only is it uh, it's of interest to consumers because it's an upcycled product, but it's of interest to the manufacturer because they're able to monetize a waste stream. I mean, who wouldn't be interested in that? Hmm. So, so Barb, what's next for you and what's next for Matson? Yeah, it's, I, I can share lots of stuff. I think I, I will say that we are very, as you can tell, bullish on plant-based alternatives. We are also very excited about this space around cultivated meat, fish, seafood, dairy, you name it, alternatives that are, are grown from cells as opposed to through the slaughter of animals or the taking products from animals. And we've even started work on some cultivated meat products. So we're very, very excited about that space. You know, just in terms of the company, we uh, we have two upcoming webinars. One will be talking to Coca-Cola about starting a brand from scratch on August 25th. And then I mentioned earlier our 
real excitement around grab and go and around the perimeter of the store. And we're going to be doing an, uh, a webinar bringing to light some of our consumer insights in this space on September 22nd. So, you know, you can certainly have people reach out to me if they're interested in those. We've got so much going on. It's really, it's, it's great that we get to work across the industry and across technologies and across companies and across the, the different just channels that we work in. It's just so exciting to be at Matson right now. And like you said, to be in the food and beverage industry right now with so much innovation going on. If folks want to reach out to you, Barb, what is your email address or other contact information? Sure. It's Barb at MatsonCo.com. That's M-A-T-T-S-O-N-C-O.com. That's excellent. Um, Barb, last question I always ask all of our guests, and it's a two-part question. What advice would you give to two different folks? First, the people currently innovating in the food and CPG space. And second, new people just starting their careers in this space. What, what advice would you give? Well, I, I would, I'll start with the latter. So people who are just getting into the, the food world, I would say that you have to get into the food and beverage industry because you're passionate about it. And if you're not passionate about it, don't do it. It, it really takes passion to be successful. And that's especially true if you're trying to get a new product off the ground or get a new brand into the market or launch a new company. It's the passion that consumers want to hear about these days. They'll feel it from the product. They'll feel it from the brand. And that's where we see a lot of success, where there's a story of passion. And I would say <laughs> the flip side of that is don't do it because you think you'll be able to make money by flipping the company after you get some private equity funding. And it, it's, it's not about making money. It's about passion. And the passionate entrepreneurs are the ones who end up making money because you can you can taste their passion, if you will. So that's my advice to people getting into the space. I think for people who are already innovating, I would say, please keep pushing the boundaries, keep looking to the future, looking to young people, younger consumers, look at what they're doing, because that's what they're going to be looking to buy in convenient versions in package versions in the future. So, you know, if your brand is not appealing to the the younger millennial and the Gen Z consumer today, you got to get working on that because they're going to be the ones with the purchasing power in the next decade. Well, that's very good advice. So Barb, before we go into wrap up, any comments or words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, Gary, first of all, thank you for having me and Matson. We love what you guys do, and I'm really honored to be a guest on your show. You know, I would say it's important that people like you are out there talking about food and beverage to the industry, connecting people, using technology like podcasts. So I just want to thank you, and thank you for having us. Well, thank you. And I, I, I want to thank again our special guest today, 
Barb Stuckey, who is President and Chief Innovation Officer at Matson. Barb, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. 